In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hey everyone, this is Patrick. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Well Standard Podcast. Uh, it's our season on entrepreneurship and we're almost done. This is one of the final guests and it was a great interview. This guy's so smart and so experienced, more importantly. And I think you guys are going to be entertained as well as informed on some of the things we haven't necessarily got into in this season, which is really below the surface of customer experience, client experience, and how vital that is to long-term success of a brand, an organization, an enterprise. Let me introduce him. So Dr. Joseph Michelli is an internationally sought-after speaker and organizational consultant. Dr. Michelli is the author of numerous national bestsellers, including Starbucks Experience, Five Principles for Turning Ordinary into Extraordinary, and the new, new gold standard, Five Leadership Principles for Creating a Legendary Customer Experience, courtesy of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. And also his New York Times number one bestseller, Prescription for Excellence, Leadership Lessons for Creating a World-Class Customer Experience from the UCLA Health System. He was named as one of the top 10 thought leaders in customer service by Global Gurus. And his new book, which is about a more recent company, Airbnb, Five Leadership Lessons for Igniting Growth Through Loyalty, Community, and Belonging. So Dr. Michelli, it was a pleasure really getting into what I would say is the necessary variable to success, which is the customer. And it's not just what they want, need, desire, dream of. Now, it is how to keep tabs and keep a pulse on that and be obsessed with figuring out ways to continually do that. I think that is going to, it's going to be a necessity in order to sustain a healthy brand and healthy, uh, healthy company. Also, just as a final reminder, you guys are interested in the invite I gave a couple episodes back in regards to the Unleash the Power Within Tony Robbins experience. It's going to be in March in San Jose, California. I'm going to be there. Some members of my team are going to be there as well. And we would love for you to join, join us. It's, it's an incredible experience. This will be like the fifth time, I think, fourth time or fifth time, maybe sixth time. I can't remember. Going to this specific event and it is life-changing. And I think you guys will have a blast. Well worth the investment. Well worth the time you spend on it. And also, we got a, a pretty steep discount on uh, the tickets based on my relationship with the uh, organization. So I hope you guys can join us. Just go to the show notes, and you'll get all of the notes from this episode, as well as the links to Dr. Michelli's website, his social media, his books, and, uh, and also for more information on the UPW experience. Okay, that's it. Let's uh, get to my interview with Dr. Joseph Michelli. Joseph, it's awesome to have you on. Thank you for taking 
the time. I know it's a busy time of year, but I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have because you're an expert in a field I believe is just one of those variables that's often overlooked and ultimately leads to catastrophe, right? In, in, the, in the business world. So first off, welcome to the, to the podcast and thanks for joining us. Are you kidding me? I mean, given the kinds of folks you've had on the show, I'm, I'm just honored to, to be here across the screen from you. You've done so much work and continue to do it. And like I said, it, it's one of those things we've, you know, I think as entrepreneurs, as business owners, you, you come up with an idea. But oftentimes the way in which you view the world is your way and it may not be other people's way. And sometimes that kind of gets in the way from really understanding who's going to buy your stuff, right? Marketing's a big piece of it. Customer fulfillment's another piece of it. But anyway, you specialized in this area and written a number of books on it. The customer is number, in my opinion, always comes number one. Is there argument to the contrary of that? No, I think Peter Drucker said it best. He, he once said that we're not in business to create a profit. We're in business to create a customer. And it's through all customers that profits come. You know, successful business has to define value and create value. And then it has to market to the people who find value in it. And then once those people show up, you have to deliver the value you marketed against. And you have to constantly refine the delivery of that value based on the need set of your consumers. And so that's really the space I live in. Thank God I don't have to deal with the other elements of business like making enough money to stay in business. Those, uh, those factors are some financier types, but um, really truly try to help brands figure out what does it take to deliver the value for the customers that are optimal for them. So talk about, so talk about the, 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 the changing of customers, right? Because you know, one of the examples we talked about briefly before we, before we started recording was you know, the Blockbuster. Blockbuster fulfilled a need, right? It's just the customer wanted more. And they wanted the same need, but ultimately less friction and less hassle, right? So, I mean, talk about just the, you know, you meet a need, but then it's like the, the necessity of constantly being in tune with your customers so that they don't leave you. Yeah, I was so grateful to Blockbuster when my kids were little. I mean, certainly we spent our, our Friday afternoon traipsing around the, the stacks of videos, normally not being able to find the ones we wanted most and defaulting to others. And then we were among that set of people who ultimately paid more for the videos and late fees than it would have cost us had we bought them new. And, you know, I think that the, there was such a wonderful distribution on your corner, access to entertainment. And then delivery systems changed and Blockbuster did not. They also made what I would call bad profit. They made a lot of profit on those late fees. And that kind of profit alienated the consumer over time. And Blockbuster wasn't ready to pivot. They weren't ready to buy Netflix when Netflix came begging to be purchased from them by them at one point in their, their evolution. And certainly now Netflix faces the competition of Disney Plus and all the others. But uh, they certainly got ahead of the power in terms of what consumers wanted in downloadable delivery. You know, and I would say that they benefited from like the whole monopoly idea. There wasn't much competition out there, right? And they just kept like frustrating people, right? The late fees, changing this, that, I mean, it, they, they went out of their way to make profit, right? At the expense of, frust of frustrating the customer. So it was kind of like when a new, more viable option, like Redbox and, you know, all these other things started to appear, it's like, boom, they were ready to go. It, it's yeah. just, you know, Blockbuster was capitalizing on a monopoly that they had formed over the years. Absolutely. And if you think about Netflix as the, the entrant that really challenged them most, I mean, Netflix had to rely on the United States Postal Service as their delivery system. And so it, had, it was fraught with its own sets of problems. And over time, they were able to make the pivot to streaming and, 
and here we are today. But you're right. I mean, I think sometimes we can trap a customer in relationship with us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that when an option comes available, they're going to do anything more than flee with abandon. It seems, you know, that the, the evolution, it's like, you, know, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we've gone as like a society from over the last hundred years, like being afraid to die during a hard winter, right? To, to now like living in such an amazingly abundant world, right? And, and now it's like, you know, I would say as far as a business need is concerned, they should like insert in like the, the customer experience because experience People didn't look for experience, you know, like a hundred years ago. It was all like, how do I have enough food and storage? So, or wood cut, wood cut so I don't freeze during the winter. Right now it's like you have, there's so much entertainment that people have been like conditioned for experience, right? And there's been brands that have capitalized on that understanding where they did that, you know, intentionally or, or not. So would you, would you speak to that as just like, the importance of just the experience and, and having a, a customer feel important based on the way in which you, you know, way you treat them or your business treats them. Sure. I was sitting across from Howard Schultz, the kind of the, the founder legend, if you will, behind Starbucks. And, and Howard once turned to me and said, Joseph, we are not in the coffee business. And I thought, well, it kind of shocks me really. Uh, he said, no, we're in the people business serving coffee. And I think that if you get down to it, you know, people may need a warm cup of caffeine uh, at, at some fundamental level to get jump started in the morning, but ultimately they need a sense of community. They need a sense of belonging. The things that are up higher in that Maslowian pyramid that you talk about, so basic safety security needs, those, those are kind of table stakes for most of us nowadays, and we're, we're wanting to get that. If that's what we're seeking out, we want to get that plus. We want to get the social benefits of feeling like we belong to the tribe of the company that is delivering that for us. And, you know, we just did a new book about Airbnb and I would say housing and accommodations, which are very primary, you know, give me a safe shelter is on the very bottom of the Maslowian pyramid, but you can do that and also create a space where people feel like, welcome, you belong in my physical place. And I think that's what great brands are doing, whether they're entrepreneurial brands or they're established brands, they're constantly looking for what are the higher level emotional belonging, self-actualization, personal success, identity needs of a consumer can we address in the context of our deliverable? You know, you hit something that I hadn't thought of before. It's like, you know, the, the, the lower levels of that, the hierarchy of needs is like, it's, that's just expected, right? It's like the, the self-esteem and the self-actualization. The self-esteem, it's like people want, you know, to feel they want to experience. That's what they're looking for personally. But then I've also like connected to like all of the, the efforts to do these socially, environmentally conscious, like there's socially conscious investment funds, right? You have tax credits. It's incredible, like the direction people are going as far as giving back and getting to that self-actualization phase, which is really all, all about uh, cont- contribution. But it's becoming part of a lot of businesses that I've seen. I haven't connected that before where when you see that a business is out to do good, it's kind of like you're more attracted to them than the business that's out to like, you know, turn a profit. It's interesting. Yeah, and because that business doing good is a expression of my ability to do good in the world, right? And, <laughs> and often I think brands are really little more than extensions of our own identity. You know, am I a, am I a Starbucks or am I a Dunkin' Donuts? You know, am I a Ford or am, am I a Ferrari? These things are ingrained into the way we see ourselves. And so my dad was a Ford guy and I worked for Mercedes-Benz. And I must tell you, 
I ultimately bought a Mercedes partly out of my business relationship with them. And I remember sitting in that dealership going, geez, my dad, would my dad be okay with me buying this car? And, you know, I think it, that in many ways, if Mercedes doesn't connect with my sense of self-expression and identity and the Ford does, then I can have some buyer's remorse uh, for that purchase. You know, I bought another car this year and and I never, it was a BMW. I never bought a BMW before. And I, I had to pre-order it and put a you know, little deposit down. And, it, you know, timelines were messed up. And there was a few things they were supposed to, they didn't do. And about two weeks ago, I got a, I got a, a handwritten letter and a check from the CEO and like another executive, right? Wow. Refund, refunding my deposit. And I'm like, I can't believe this. Yeah. And, and what it did, like internally, I had those feelings of like, man, I'm like, I'm not going to deal with GMC right? For my wife's car. I'm like, screw them. Like, I'm, this is where I'm going, right? Because again, it's one of those, like, they made you feel important, right? They made right. you feel valuable. They cared about your experience with them because they knew that, you know, part of their business model was repeat business. And, you know, they understood how it all played into things. But that's where- Yeah, you know, I mean, you're an important guy. I mean, the CEO wrote you. And let's go one step further. Wow, look how smart you are because you're purchasing from a brand that behaves like this. You are, sure. you are good and wonderful. And I say that to you in the sense of the brand's effort to communicate to the consumer that you are smart. You chose us, right? And I think there are a lot of brands that don't get it. And it is all about the, the product. It's all about the exchange of cash for the, the service. And there's very little understanding that beneath every purchase intent, is an emotional driver, is a psychological driver. And people will justify purchases in their frontal cortex. You know, they'll say, you know, calculating the benefits and the, uh, and, you know, the deficits, I've concluded that this is the wisest, uh, most prudent decision. But in point of fact, that's just the language we use to make it okay to be a pretty emotional being that says, whoa, that's cool what they did. I'm even more in for the, the next BMW. Would you, would you speak to the, the, the resilience of, of good brands, right? Because I, I look at big failures with customer loyalty, like, you know, Wells Fargo, for example, holy crap, did they screw up, okay? But they're still alive, you know, they're trying to rebrand and I, I'm not sure I haven't really studied that, maybe you have. You know, I, I look at what I've discovered is, you know, you could try certain things and do this and do this and still retain brand uh, or customer loyalty, right? Because there's kind of a resilience factor there. But sometimes people won't innovate, right? For fear, right? Of poking the bear, right? (laughs) Of having the customer go go elsewhere. Like, what are are your thoughts around that? Because I see there's just this constant evolution of what uh, customers are expecting from a brand, right? And if you're not on top of that, you may be good now, but a couple years from now, you're gone. I've definitely studied Wells Fargo because uh, one of my clients is a major bank that is merging with another major bank. So I've, I've been in this space for a long time. And I can tell you that generally banks partly benefit kind of in a blockbuster sort of sense by getting you in multiple products and making it complicated for you to disrupt your life to leave them. So there were definitely people who did in the, in the aftermath of Wells Fargo, a very big breach of trust for a lot of consumers. So you saw people move out, but probably not as much as if there had been a single product industry where I could just pull and run. The price of transition and banking is a bit of a challenge and some banks have taken advantage of that. I think innovative banks that deliver an enlightened experience, you're seeing some of these you know, Capital One cafes and some other things going that. out in the space where people are innovating and attracting a whole group of people who are saying, 
I'm tired of that other crap, or I don't have to go to a bank anymore physically. So all of the grandiosity of banking isn't for me. Give me great technology, make it easy for me to do my banking with you, educate me on financial literacy. And those are the things that seem to be resonating now. You know, I would, I would just say really, I think one of my favorite lines, again, and I'm, I feel like I'm quoting Howard Schultz uh, left and right here, but Howard often would talk about making deposits in the reservoir of trust. And what he would say is let's do a lot of good things socially because invariably things are gonna fall apart, particularly in human service delivery. People let other human beings down. And in the context of describing Starbucks, you would often say, you know, one of our greatest disadvantages is we're not Coca-Cola and our product just doesn't sit on a shelf where people can't screw it up. And then he would turn around and say, one of the greatest advantages we have is our product doesn't sit on the shelf and we can elevate the product through our humans. But given that humans will let others down, we need to make lots of social positive deposits. So when in Philadelphia, a barista does not allow you know, people of color to use the bathrooms without a purchase, we can withstand the wrath in the aftermath because our track record going in was one that was fairly socially conscious. Um, so I would say to you, I think that it's a complex question, but if you just try to fix it after all of the horses run out of the Wells Fargo stable, without <laughs> a lot of investments a priori, you'll find yourself just in a world of hurt. Well, maybe let's maybe step back a couple a couple steps, and you know when when you, know, you have this this entrepreneurial spirit in a lot of in a lot of people, they come up with ideas and they're they're connecting to see whether those ideas are relevant to other people and build a business out of it. Like what? what are steps to take to understand the, the customer that you've seen successful across enterprises? Well, I mean, I think today there's a lot of data that you can acquire about customers. So pay attention to the data of what people are doing. But that said, I also think you have to warm up all that big data with some voice of customer listening. So if you're launching a business, talk to people who you think are optimal customers of your business. Don't assume you understand them because you're like them, right? I mean, you may be like them in a lot of ways, but you'll find out frequently that customers who are really willing to pay for your services are going to want some things that you haven't even contemplated. So talk, 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 listen, 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 ask a million questions, and then observe their behavior with whatever data analysis you can. Do they touch the items when they come into your retail store? What items do they touch? Do you need to put more of those touchable tactile experiences for them? When you ask them about what are the products, you ask them after they've been in your store, what, what do they remember about what, they, what was in your store? The things they remember, you want to put more of those types of things in your store. If, for example, if we were doing a podcast, in this podcast, and we were going to say, what stood out based on what was talked about today? Well, based on whatever I would hear from your audience, I would be thinking about adding more of that in in future guesting appearances on podcasts like yours. And so I think that's the key is to, to give this blank canvas. Don't assume that anything that you're thinking about doing is really going to resonate. Just see what resonated and do more of that. You know, it's a fascinating approach. And I, and I look at, you know, there's signs out there, whether it's the use of focus groups or beta testing, it's, I'm starting to, to remember with just conversations I've had. And, you know, and like I said, it's one of those, like the constant testing and constant, you know, improvement of doing even more, right? knowing what needs are. And that's a comment you made that I remember from the Wells Fargo example. It's like resilience, right, is, is from multiple, multiple products, right? And there are multiple financial products out there. So it's one of those, you know, the more you have, the more resilient a customer could, could be. And so if you come up with a crappy one, 
right? And they have already multiple, then, you know, you could probably get rid of that one and do another one without losing the customer. So it's interesting because oftentimes you have one trick ponies, one service, one product. Do you consider that dangerous as far as like a, a company health is concerned? Well, I mean, I think it's, it kind of depends. Like, for example, I think if you make a really good hamburger and really good French fries and a great milkshake, it's a very solid business play. Should you explore adjacencies that seem reasonable? Most brands do, and they do well from it. But there are, are the five guys of the world who probably will do very, very well sustaining a focus, not getting too broad, not having lots of spe- you know, limited time of offers. Options. Yeah, and, and I think executing well and knowing that your customer wants that, and it's a frequent enough need state for consumers, you can do well with the one single product. But then, you know, there are those brands that find just those sweet little adjacencies that customers also want. Uh, and those are, that's kind of the perfect, perfect mix. I remember like feeling really curious about the, the success of like a, you know, a GoPro, right? Going, you know, public with just like one, one product. You have maybe a, a few different versions, but it's, it's interesting because they've been, they've been successful and I haven't checked their, right. their financials recently, but you know, I've always just been curious as to like different products and multiple products and there's, there's happy medium, but I would assume that, you know, these enterprise companies, and maybe you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that they are, they have ways in which they're in tune with their customer, getting feedback, using data, creating profiles, creating avatars, and, you know, understanding the words they use, the messaging that most resonates and test, test, test. I mean, maybe they're not this doing is it. my I mean, world. No, that is what I do. That's exactly what I do as my full-time gig, right? And then I write books about a lot of that. So, but yeah, I mean, literally we will take, we'll take an optimal customer. We'll, put them into a persona. We might create an avatar around them, but we're going to train. We're going to anticipate the entire journey that they're going to have with the brand, all of their various use cases, how they integrate at all the contact points with the brand. Then we're going to, after we've anticipated that, we're going to go and talk to them and we're going to say, what is, what is it that happens? And sometimes we talk to them in focus groups. Sometimes we do ethnographic studies, which essentially says, you know, a day in the life of, or keep a journal of use of our product or as you're opening the box, what are you thinking, feeling, doing, saying to yourself? All of these things are designed for us to get insights into what would increase the connectivity, the stickiness, the likelihood to recommend this product or brand to others. And we track all the metrics to support those things and design to optimize for those folks. All right. So I have two kind of like concluding questions. The first is, with nonprofits, right, where you have a, it's more mission driven than customer driven. How do successful nonprofits, how are they sustained and maintain their growth by connecting? So that was, that's the first question I have. Have you had experience with like- Oh, absolutely. We've, we've worked with a lot of nonprofits and, you know, they have customers. The people who support those nonprofits have to be connected to the mission as well. Yeah. So I think it's being able to inspire people to help you achieve the mission because there's no mission without money in any nonprofit you have to be able to generate enough revenue to achieve the mission so it's getting people to buy the vision alongside of you it's helping them tell stories about their journey in support of that with you in the mission if you can think of some of the you know the wounded warrior projects and others they really have storytellers who are telling the story of the impact of the organization's mission And that story is part of engaging their customers, those who support these nonprofits. So while it may not be formally the same, there is still a need to generate engagement 
of those who support the cause on behalf of the impact the cause creates. That's amazing storytelling, especially if you're telling a story that a person can sympathize or empathize with. And when you go without a story, it's hard to connect. I look at a lot. I mean, there's been a million books written on you know, storytelling, but it's one of those things that's just a constant. We're just connected to that as, as human beings. It's fascinating because that's, I would say it's relevant to for-profit brand, right? Public company, private company. It's being able to connect the story because I think human beings like being with human beings. It gives them a sense of meaning, but it's people that are like them that they want to be with. Yeah, we want, we want a lot of technology to make our lives easier. We want you to think through the experience with lots of convenience and friction reduction through technology, but we want to be inspired by human beings. I think the 21st century company is a technology-enabled human-powered organization. And so part of the human power is service delivery, human storytelling, the impact of your brand on other humans. Final one. So what trends are you paying attention to? Like, What are you seeing as, as far as customer behavior and how it's changing? Or do you just see, kind of see the same thing with maybe a little bit different angle? Yeah, well, there's a law called Martex law, which says you better track what customers do in behavior exponentially because most organizations are only improving incrementally. And the gap between what customers are doing exponentially behaviorally and what most brands are doing is the disruption gap. It's the gap that Airbnb shot. You know, for, for the most part, consumers are wanting everything mobile. So everything's got to be mobile and you've got to be able to deliver your sales, service, experience mobile. You should be able to give them a multitude of channels. So rather than forcing them to have human contact at every turn, they should have the option of an all digital journey. You should also give them options like this, a virtual experience where we are human, human to human, aided by technology, but we're not sitting in the same room. I know that's a total demystification of the magic of, of your show, but you, know, you don't actually have to have two people in the same physical place to allow them to have a human interaction. So it's really thinking through the, the reality that people want to engage with brands wherever they want, whenever they want, using the technology available and having people uh, ready and able to help them in the event the tech, self-serve technology isn't sufficient for their given needs. State. I know so you. That's one. You yeah, the other quick one. I was going to say one other quick one that we're seeing is a, a lack of desire to own things and more and more willingness to rent and share. The marketplace is no longer, you know, the the prom dress has to be newly purchased. You purchase one, why can't we, you know, rent that out to other people in need? So conspicuous consumption is being changed to stewardship environmental consciousness and those things. So brands need to be paying attention to those trends in particular. That's fascinating. I know you talk a lot about touch points, right? And knowing kind of what type of experience to have at different, at different touch points. When you were saying that, I was, there's a conversation I had a, a few months ago about somebody that's trying to invent like the smell, you know, you have a memory, like you take a picture or a video, right? But the things that are missing, you know, you can have sound, but like the smell and somebody's like working on how to replicate a smell anyway. Yeah, Martin, Martin Lindstrom is a great guest to have someday. He specializes in multi-sensory marketing, and he's a big fan of, of smell and, and drives profits associated with it. What's, so, it, what's his name again, uh, Martin? Martin? Martin Lindstrom. Yeah, it's a, he's a great person to, to include in that conversation. Important touch point. Well, Joseph, this has been awesome. It's one of those interviews I was really excited about because it's a, the customer is sometimes elusive right? If you don't know what to look for and if you don't have a good strategy to, to understand them. You know, I, I got to tell you, I think your show, and I've seen episodes of it long before becoming a guest, and I think your show is reflective of a lot of trends for people and a lot of awareness of the customer. I mean, I think you've really 
thought through what people want to hear and who they want to hear from. You give them access to things that they would not otherwise be able to get access to themselves. I mean, it is no easy feat to get someone like a Michael Gerber on a show. And so I think those are trends that people want. They want exclusivity. They want access. They want somebody to curate information. So of all of the, the information out there, curate it so you give me impactful knowledge. And it's an honor to have been part of that today and, and to spend time with you. Well, it's an honor to have you. And we're going to post all of the, all the book links as well as your social media so people can, can follow you. Because I know you've worked with some really successful brands. And yeah, it's, it's inspiring to know that human beings just continue to, in a weird way, like care about each other and, and do that through commerce, through service, like trying to figure out better ways to, to improve, magnify the, the human experience. It's always, it's always cool, cool to realize what's going on from that perspective. Yeah, you know, I commit myself to serving brands that are committed to serving well. So I don't work with those leaders who say we want it to be the year of the customer this year, just as an add-on. People have an authentic commitment to elevating the life and the experience of their consumers and in the process benefit themselves and all the other stakeholders. That's the company for me. And I've been really honored to get to work with those brands. And, and there are a lot of them out there. You read the news and you think, you know, what's gone wrong with business and trust in, in the world around us. But I'll tell you, I work with some remarkable leaders who are, who are genuinely concerned about making the life of the people they serve better. Joseph, thank you again. It's been awesome. I hope you have a great uh, holiday season. We'll, we'll definitely have you back. Thanks. Yeah, we'll do a book in a couple of years on Godiva chocolate. Maybe we can score you some chocolate as part of that deal. I have to share with my wife. Ah, good. We have yeah. to have double supply. Hopefully she'll leave some for you. That's what I always Hopefully. think. Yeah. <laughs> hey, right, thanks Jason. a lot. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website thewealthstandard.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,